Welcome to Women Wanting Women, where we explore topics that matter to women like us. We talk about being a woman, attracting women, and becoming more powerful women by developing more self-confidence and always reaching for the next level in our self-actualization. I'm your hostess, lesbian love coach, Jordana Michelle. And if you're interested in finally finding the woman of your dreams, so you could be best friends who learn and grow together and share dreams together and have adventures together and share passionate intimacy together, then also check out my website, womenwantingwomen.com, because it's packed with resources that can help you, including my guide to quickly and easily eliminate rejection from your life, a how-to guide for finding your lesbian soulmate, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a report that explains the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, and a matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is free at womenwantingwomen.com. But before we go any further, I have a question. Who in the world can you think of that loves to talk about lesbian relationships more than I do? Well, if such a person exists, I'd say it's probably Dr. Frankie Bashan. Dr. Frankie is a lesbian matchmaker, relationship expert, TV personality, event planner, and doctor of clinical psychology specializing in serving the LGBT community. And in this episode of Women Wanting Women, I got to pick Dr. Frankie's brain about her best advice for how queer women can connect and find happiness and love together. You can learn more about Dr. Frankie and all the services and activities she offers our community on her website, littlegaybook.com. But before you do, I hope you enjoy this really fun and wisdom-filled interview with the lovely Dr. Frankie. Dr. Frankie. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure to be here. I've been really looking forward to this conversation because who better than you to talk about lesbian dating with? Oh, you know how much I love it. I can go on and on and on. Same. It's my favorite thing to talk about. So let's just start from the top. What do you think is the biggest challenge that you see for women in lesbian dating? What I hear from women is that the biggest challenge is that they can't find a quality match. I can't find, I hear this from them, I can't find a professional woman like me who's established and settled, got everything that they want except a partner. They come to me to solve that problem. Everything you want except the partner. And so then how are they defining quality? You said established, you said settled. Well, tell me about these women that are coming to you, first of all, because it's, I guess you're serving a certain kind of demographic then. Yes. I mean, it, it depends, like depends at what level you're engaging with me and in what service. So I'm thinking matchmaking. Yes. It's a, it's a certain, um, segment of the population and my matchmaking clients are made up of women who are very, are driven, successful, um, financially, like stable, self-sufficient. Um, they have a solid support system. It could be a chosen family or their family and friends. Um, they take good care of themselves physically, emotionally. They are basically, like I said, they have everything that they could possibly want, except they're having trouble finding 
their match. Yeah, so you're basically servicing these full package humans. They worked really hard in so many ways on themselves and making sure that they, you know, have a solid income and that they're stable in all these areas of their life. And then they focused so much on their career that they didn't, you know, they don't have a lot of time to go out there and date. I have a question. Do you think that the population of queer women that find themselves in the position in this position is greater than in, in the straight community? Or do you think this is just, these are just the ones who find you, but it's not statistically something going on deeper than that? No, I just think it, it is, um, I don't think it's deeper than that. I think even women in the, in the straight world, there are, there are women like this. 100%. Very driven, self-sufficient, yeah, go-getter. That tends to be my matchmaking client profile. But then what I was saying is it depends on what what they engage in in terms of my offerings at Little Gay Book because I do single mingles that are now all virtual because of COVID. But they used to be in really cool um, swanky like lounges and bars and restaurants where we would do, um, speed dating events with using a software that has a matching algorithm that basically rotates the room and helps you to meet one another, um, based on your preferences. And those events are, you know, everybody from, I mean, it really, all different socioeconomic statuses, all different races and ethnicities are represented there, all age ranges. Like it's just, it's everybody in our community. And are you finding that they're having similar problems to the ones that are also financially in a position to engage you in matchmaking? Absolutely. Same problems. Same problems across the board. Same, same. Well, struggle finding, finding their match. Like, you know, somebody that they're compatible with. They struggle too. And I mean, I, I tend to think that this is sort of the game in lesbian dating is that patience and bravery around the times that we're single and maintaining the faith because, you know, there is the whole fact that we're part of a minority. And, but I don't think that that means that lesbians have fewer relationships. I just tend to think we have maybe more time between our relationships than, than straight women. But I don't necessarily, do you think that lesbians, because of this, because of how hard it is to meet someone, do you think queer women have fewer relationships? I don't think they have fewer relationships. I think we have fewer options. I think our pools are, instead of it being like a sea of options, we have ponds of options. And if we're not willing to go outside of our geographic location, we're limited in that pond. So if you're going to focus on your area, you want to meet somebody, for example, you're in the New York area. If you want to meet somebody in New York, you have to be willing to date somebody who may have dated somebody that you know, who may have dated an ex of an ex. You can't, right? You can't have it all. Right. It's always within the web. It's within the web. So we need to expand. So I say to people that reach out to me when they express their frustration, I say, you've got to go outside of your area. And if you don't want to go outside of your area, that's okay. But then something's got to give. Right. You can't both stay in your area and not date anyone who's ever known anyone you've ever known. Exactly. Well said. Yes. So we have ponds and we have, so we have less options, less choices. I think when you're straight, you just, it's look at the numbers. You just have, there's way more straight people. 
There are, but I don't necessarily think that straight women are having an easier time getting those straight men to commit to them and be in a relationship. I think queer women, we have it a little bit luckier because once we do find someone, it sort of moves into relationship mode a little bit easier a lot of the time. So you're speaking to a bigger issue. You're speaking to something else, which is our culture. So our dating culture that we've created here, um, which is people are, we're told through social media, advertising, television, right? Movies, we're told that you deserve it. You deserve more. You deserve better. Like, you know, so what's happened now is that with this swiping mentality of, wait, but there could be my perfect match right around the corner, we're noncommittal. On top of that, you think about the chemical reaction that we get from somebody online where we're matched with some, you get a serotonin hit, right? Which feels pretty euphoric. It feels great. So there's like a biological change, a chemical change that happens that sort of keeps you in this cycle of wanting that hit again. So even if you meet somebody that you click with, you're still curious about whether there's somebody that's a better match for you because you start to see that this person may not absolutely be 100% a perfect match for you because that doesn't even exist. We get into this cycle, right, of thinking we might be missing out on somebody who's even better for us. And then where does that lead us? We don't make any progress, right? We don't move into relationship status because we're still, we're spinning our wheels trying to find the perfect person. And do you see that problem a lot in the queer female community? Yes, I see that a lot. I see that we are short-sighted, that we don't, we are limiting ourselves. We, like, some people have an insane number of deal breakers. And there, there are things that are like, here's an example. Just the other day, I sent a client out, a matchmaking client out on a date, and I ask that my clients and their catches, the women I send them on dates with, submit feedback to me within 24 hours of their date. And the feedback I got from my client is that the woman I sent her out with told her that she, she had a great time, but actually um, she's not attracted to women with short hair. So she just tossed, like, my client's amazing. So she has short hair. I, I told my client, of course, my client said to me, Frankie, did she know that I had short hair? I said, of course she knew that. I described what you look like. I don't ever send somebody out on a date without describing what they look like. But that was her response. Who knows? It might be that she... Maybe that was some excuse. It was an excuse. Exactly. We don't know. Yeah. Thought that somehow that would be less offensive or I don't know. But there are certainly women that will say to me, like, it's a deal breaker if she has short hair. I absolutely love long hair, and I can't date somebody with short hair. And I'm thinking to myself, you, ju you just, like, you could meet somebody who's absolutely fantastic, would be a great match, would be really compatible, and you're going to say no because they have short hair. It's, it can be really kind of superficial and icky when you, you know, I see that kind of stuff in my work where I have to help push people a little to be more open if they want to find, if they want to be partnered. Talk to me about it. Talk to me about how we can be, how people who might find themselves with these self-limiting deal breakers that aren't actually, that are blocking themselves from being happy and finding compatibility with someone wonderful. How do you recommend to people that they can push themselves to be more open? 
to really look at that more deeply, like look beneath the layers. Is it that you really don't want to be in a relationship and you're setting up barriers for yourself? Is it that you want to be in a relationship, but you don't feel worthy enough to be in a relationship? You don't feel good enough? Is it that you've had, you know, negative experiences in the past in relationships and you feel that you're somehow, somehow broken or not able to successfully be in a relationship? So you're sabotaging yourself? And is it always around attraction issues? It's just, it could be... It, it's it's not always around attraction issues. It's sometimes like they'll come up with, you know, maybe they don't have a career that, you know, maybe they're a police officer, right? And they, they didn't envision themselves with a police officer. They envisioned themselves with somebody who's in corporate America. And they're thinking, oh, that, you know, that person's profession doesn't mesh well with with my vision. That's not what I envisioned that I would be with a person who's a cop. I'm just throwing out an example. Like sometimes it's career related. Um, Geographic issues, like they don't want to, here's an example in New York. There are clients that I have in New York that don't want to date somebody on Long Island, that don't want to date somebody in Connecticut. There are Areas in Connecticut that are 45 minutes from the city, they don't want to deal with that. That's too far for them. Yeah. Like, yeah. Really? If you met somebody fantastic, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't make an effort or a point to like date them for a year driving 45 minutes to see them. You could figure out how to close that gap to get closer in proximity. Yeah. So it's like limiting. And you think it all comes down to... Um, this question of like, maybe there, there's something keeping them from the relationship. This is sort of to you and you're the trained psych, you're the, the licensed therapist. I'm a psychologist. Yeah. Yeah. So of course I'm going to go, Hmm. Right. Like there's something more here. That's so interesting. And so for anyone listening that might really believe that they're not attracted to that person or might really believe that there is a problem, how do you start to examine, how do you start to look beneath in that way? Um, how do they know? You say, is it just that you don't want the relationship? How do they know? I mean, that seems like something that might be hidden. You might not, you know what I mean? It may be non-obvious. You look for a pattern. So you look for a pattern. So if, if you're finding that repeatedly you're presented with opportunities, whether it be that friends want to set you up with somebody or family, or you connect with somebody online on a dating app, repeatedly you come up with excuses as to why this person isn't good enough. Mm. And looking at those individuals and thinking, am I making assumptions about them? Am I creating some sort of like preconceived ideas about them? Because we can project, right? And what are some assumptions? So like someone with short hair, I mean, some of the most feminine women in the world have short hair. It's not a masculine feminine thing. So maybe it's sort of, maybe there's a prejudice in their mind, short hair equals non-feminine or something. Or um, in corporate America, they might think, oh, you make more money, but not realizing the benefits of, of, of being a police officer and, and the financial benefits. So it might actually be equal in the end. Someone with short hair might be equally as feminine or a police officer may, might make equally as much money. I don't know. I'm making these things up. You just touched on it. So that's it. So like, let's use your first example of short hair. So I'm a good example, right? I have, I have short hair. I'm incredibly feminine. 
but people will make assumptions about me because I certainly can wear skinny jeans and boots and, you know, and, and be a little more kind of androgynous, but I'm, I'm pretty girly. Um, and the assumption is right. When you say somebody has short hair, I think some of us have internalized homophobia. So the assumption is that, oh, she's going to be too masculine for me. She's not feminine enough. I mean, I think you touched on a really big deal here, though, because I think that internalized homophobia, especially for those of us who were born or who, who, who started coming out or dealing with our homosexuality before it was cool, you know, or before it was acceptable or before it was in any way allowed or okay or non-taboo, that would make a lot of sense. And it could be, there's to some degree where, where we're just sort of not really looking at the full picture. But I think that it can reach a point where you really are turned off by something, you know what I mean? And, and they might really be turned off if the, if the internalized homophobia is strong enough. It, it strikes me that maybe it's, yes, to some degree, it's, it's just in their head. But if it's so deep in your head, they may not be able to correct for it, right? Or do you think there's always the ability to correct for this? There's always the ability to correct for it, but you have to be aware of it. So this is why I'm saying slow down and pay attention to patterns. Pay attention to, are, are you making assumptions? Look a little bit deeper so that you can identify, is it, is it that I'm not attracted to her because I associate short hair with masculinity? Ask yourself those questions. But then my curiosity is then, because it's one thing to open your mind, but open mind versus turn on, I kind of see as two different things. When our minds aren't open, we're blocked. 100%. So, you have to, all right, so it's the first step is open the mind. And then at least, awareness. right, yeah, yeah, 100%. And then let, let things start flowing, right? There's a blockage. It, nothing can flow there when you're blocked. So we start with open mind. Open, open mind, mind isn't a guarantee the turn on will follow, but it most certainly is a first step. It is a first step. Yeah. Yes. And, and if we're not at least going there, then there's sort of no hope. Exactly. Exactly. There's no hope if you can't even acknowledge and recognize that that is possibly something that's happening for you. It doesn't mean you need to go and right now marry someone that you don't currently this moment feel attracted to. But maybe it's time to notice that if we don't start working on those patterns, we're never going to be attracted to anyone that we could possibly marry kind of thing. Yes. And there's some there's another thought that just came up that I want to share that I hear is that you know how people get surprised when they're attracted to somebody that's completely not their type. And they're like, I can't even, I don't, can't even explain how I'm attracted to this person, but I am. That possibility is always there. If you're open, like you need to be open, even if it's just a little bit open to the possibility because we can be surprised. But if we're not right, if we're closed off to having like a surprise or something like that present, then you're, you're not even, you foreclose any possibility. So an example is, you know, I have had clients where they, they ask me to only introduce them to women who are very, very feminine. And then somehow on their own, they end up meeting somebody who's actually more, more edgy, more androgynous. And I say, oh my gosh, well, what do you like, you wanted me to introduce you to only femmes, high femmes. And now look, this is what I was talking about. And they're like, Frankie, I, I don't know what to tell you. 
and it's it's possible yeah and is it starting from friendship like how do you see those when they do start like what's the best way in or I mean I guess this isn't people don't really aim to fall for someone they didn't think they wanted right so how do you how does it end up happening it's like it could be through friendship and sometimes it's just a surprise right like they don't even there's something about that person's personality that you know for example the short hair idea it's like she has short hair and, and your first hit on her or read on her is that she's masculine. Then you engage with her and you're like, she is feminine. Like she's feminine, her energy, she exudes femininity, but just at first glance, she looks more masculine, but that was an assumption. Yeah. That's so great. Do you have any happy stories about, do you have any good stories about women who have been able to change this pattern for themselves and find amazing love? Not the accidental one, because that's, no one can really plan for that. But I would love to, if you have any great examples of women who really opened up. I mean, I have, I have um, about, how many, I have a matchmaking client that just got married last year, who married somebody who's 12 years or 13 years, I can't, something like that. It was a significant age difference. And initially, when I presented her to my client, my client was like, totally freaked out that it was just, it was over 10 years of a gap. And I have seen many successful relationships where there's an age gap and I'm very much, I, I write about it. I blog about it. I encourage people to be open and she was resistant. And I really, I just said, trust me, like I've been, I've been doing this a long time. She's perfect for you. And they've been together five years now and they're married. And that's, an example, right? Of, and she just trusted me. This is why when I take on matchmaking clients, I'll say to them, I just need you to trust me. Let me do what I do. I do it well. Just let me, because most people I work with, right, are very successful and powerful and they call the shots and then they hand over. And they want to be controlling. Yes. It's very crazy yeah. to let someone else be in control. So the thing I ask them to do is let me, let me do what I do well. So there's an example. And she did. She was like, all right, Frankie, I don't see it's out of my comfort zone, but I'm going to say yes to this. And it's just, they're beautiful. Now, can you keep track? Like, have you kept track of how many marriages you've made or is it impossible to keep track at this point? I've been doing it so long. It's impossible to keep track. And the funny thing is that you would think that I'm invited to all the weddings, um, but I'm not because I've, I've set up weddings and I haven't been invited. Okay. Why haven't you been invited? I don't know. Why so I know why because I've me. asked. When I show up, it, it's it's then known that they were um, set up by me. So these weren't even like contracted ones. I don't, you know, these were. I've made four marriages. Well, one life partnership. There wasn't an actual wedding. So, but three three others that were official marriages, which is not a lot. We're dealing with small numbers, but. But that it's not easy to do. Um, it's but the it's the best feeling. feeling. It's the best feeling in the world. With the weddings that I have gone to that, I, that I'm the one who arranged, it was like the greatest feeling in the whole world. Looking around, just being like, everyone is really, really happy right now. And it's partially because of me. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing that's awkward too is when I do go, then they make an announcement. I'll ask them not to. Just don't, I'm happy. I want to be there. I'm thrilled to be invited. Don't announce that. Dr. Frankie is here and she's the person that brought us together because then everybody has a million questions for the matchmaker. And then it's like taking away from their wedding. And I'm like, no, I don't <laughs> like, let's focus on you guys, you know? Totally. It's their special yeah. day. I exactly. love weddings. 
I absolutely love weddings. That's so great. Have you, and so, and these that just got married, did they invite you? The older, the the couple with the age difference, did they invite you? No, and they actually, but they, they did a testimonial. So there, you can find them, um, on my YouTube channel. No, they didn't invite me. Most, most don't invite me and I don't take any offense to it. I actually, I would prefer that they don't in some way because I just, when I show up, it's like, Oh, there's Dr. Frankie. And then it's known that I, that I actually arranged it, which is fine. But people are really private. They're private about that stuff. They don't want it to be announced. There are many, many matchmaking clients that I've worked with that don't want to put up a testimonial. They're private. That's one reason they seek out my services, right? Is because they don't want to have their, their profile out there. They're private people. So cute. I, I'm, I'm such a, I'm such a romantic. I love true love. There's nothing that makes me happier than hearing about matchmaking that, that actually works. It's so sweet. Right. Yeah. I mean, what better job could I possibly have for real? There's yeah. Nothing more that I would want to do than like help people find love and happiness. It's, and talk to people about relationships all day long. All day. That's what I do all day long. It's the most fun thing ever. So what have you learned about lesbians from your experience serving the community that, that you, that has surprised you? I wouldn't have thought that it would be such a struggle. I think what's surprising is that the human condition makes it so much harder to be successful when we want something so badly and we just keep stumbling again and again and getting in our own way. I think that's my biggest surprise through this. I knew it was challenging and I knew that there was a need, which is why I actually decided to take the leap and open Little Gay Book in 2009. But I did not realize how hard, like people that have it all, they have everything that we could ever want for, can't find a partner. And it's just, it pains me to, to, I get calls every day to hear the struggle and to hear their stories because I think fantasy has, you know, like Disney and in our generation, it's just, it sold us an idea that just isn't, it's not reality. And we keep searching for it and just falling short for ourselves. And what is the idea? It's the, the idea of perfect? Perfection. Yeah. Like I deserve it. Here's what I, this is kind of the this is what I hear from, from women often. It's like, I deserve it. I busted my ass to get to where I am and I deserve somebody who's an equal. And, um, there are certain things I'm just not going to settle for. And when you really look into it, it's like, there's financial parameters. They don't, when somebody's making over $500,000 a year, and they're not open to dating somebody who makes less than them. Like that, I, I don't, I don't really understand that. They're li- they can, they, why, why couldn't they, if it was the right person, date somebody that makes a little bit less and, and, and maintain their lifestyle and help their partner out so they can maintain that lifestyle together. It's just, that's another example of just limiting oneself unnecessarily. And in that case, I would say instead of the internalized homophobia, I would say that would be more of an internalized scarcity mentality and fear around not having enough, right? Exactly. Exactly. Because how could you not, if you're smart about your money, when you're making that kind of money and you save some, you live on some, like you're, there, there isn't, there isn't going to be 
not enough. There will be enough if you're smart about how you spend your money. Which which not everyone is. There's something else that, that comes up for me when I hear that that maybe I think could be a factor in it is when we're little girls, at least let's just say when I was growing up as a younger girl before being gay was even an option that anyone ever addressed with anyone. I mean, that didn't exist when I was little. Yeah, me neither. And there were definitely working moms, and I certainly always intended to be successful, but there kind of was, there's also that patriarchal culture, cultural expectation that the guy makes more money than the girl. And so maybe if the woman is making more money than the other one, suddenly she's the guy, and like, I don't want to be the guy, or why do I have to be the breadwinner? You know, there's sort of that role maybe that they didn't want to be. Is there any of that in there? I'm sure it's not conscious. Like it doesn't come up. Like they're not using those words when they talk to me, but of course it's in there. We also weren't taught as females where we taught how to be financially smart. Right. Like, and it's, and it's all basically judging then based on money, not on the level of success because that person that might be making less in terms of dollars could still be number one in the world in their field. Yes. And doing some life changing mind-bending things that no one else on earth has ever achieved yes but it may not necessarily and 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 really helpful to humanity but maybe not financially pay off and even in that case it doesn't is it like a level of success thing or straight dollars that you're seeing it when this happens it's both so sometimes it's straight dollars where they want to maintain a certain lifestyle and they like the act the, like the fancy, they want to live an extravagant lifestyle and they don't want anything to cramp their style in that way. And having to pay for two people would thus necessarily cramp their style. Yes. It could, it could bring it down a bit. Right. It, I mean, if it was dramatic, I can afford this for me, but I can't afford this for me and another person. You need to be able to afford this too and show up on that level. That yes, that comes up. Or people just want to be where they're at and they don't want to have to carry somebody to do what they love to do. And how do you work on that with them? I enc- I'm always encouraging people to just be like a little more open. So if you're wanting to date a professional and you want to date somebody who's got a career and not a, a job, then focus on that. Like somebody who has a career where they're, they're passionate about what they do and they're alive, like that's where you need to focus. Not so much on how much they're making. And that speaks to a lot of people. Like, I think when I say, they're like, I want somebody who's passionate about what they're doing, that how they spend their time on a daily basis matters to them. And then, you know what I mean? They're able to see like, okay, that's actually what matters more to me than the financial piece. Yeah. And to the person who's more interested in the lifestyle, for example, which I don't know whether that's fancy hotels or or restaurants or clothes or whatever. It's all of that. It's all of that. But I would say that, you know, great sex and having someone wonderful to wake up next to. And, you know, that's because that's, I think that's worth more than all the money in the world. Yes. And all the fancy restaurants in the world, you know, the actual, but I guess it's just a values thing. A real person that wants intimacy and connection. Yes. So they're seeking the person that wants somebody, right. That want they want to be with somebody who makes what they make and they want to live this extravagant lifestyle. It's like they're chasing something that doesn't actually bring happiness. Studies show that doesn't bring happiness. You see? So it's a block. (laughs) 
And I think that's a societal problem overall, right? Um, the materialization of culture and, and not really, I mean, that, I, I think that's across the board, something that everyone could, that, that the whole world, if we focused a little bit more on what actually brings us happiness, uh, I think we'd all be, we'd all be better off. We'd, we'd all, all be, be way so better off. More content in our lives, satisfied, but we're just chasing something that we've been taught will bring us happiness. But. And and what is some advice you, you have for women that are, you know, to really get back to focusing on what actually makes them happy? Are there exercises you have them do? Or what do you, how do you work with women in terms of getting them more clear on that? I really, I sit, I really get to, so I do a lot of coaching work and I, I explore them. Like what makes them tick? What gets them excited? What, you know, I ask them to give me examples and we, we hone in on that. And then I try to find, when we're talking about matchmaking, I try to find women who have, there's some overlapping values, interests, that sort of thing. And then differences, because you don't want to be with somebody who's exactly like you. You want to be with somebody that you can learn from and that you can, you can teach them a thing or two, right? So it's, it's differences and similarities. It's a combination of the two. The right combination. I want to rewind back to where you use the word ponds, and we were kind of talking about geographic location and people maybe going outside the ponds. And I get asked a lot about long distance relationships, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I say go for it again, right? Being more open. So anything is possible with parameters and boundaries and communication. So if you start up a relationship with somebody that's long distance, if both of you are making an effort to see each other physically, you know, I would say a couple times a month and you're making an effort to meet, because now, well, COVID speak, right? Like you're making an effort to connect on FaceTime or video chat on Zoom in some way on a frequent basis to maintain a connection and develop like deepen intimacy and grow within, I would say people often ask me like, how long, how long can we do that virtually before we can act? Somebody needs to make a move to move closer, to make it real, like have it be a reality. Cause it's somewhat of a fantasy. If you're always apart and living separate lives, you have to figure out how to bring your lives together so you can share in the reality. And I would say by a year, somebody needs to make a move. You can't sustain what I've seen in relationships that are long distance. You can't sustain successfully more than a year apart. Yeah. So long distance relationship, go for it. Um, make the effort, see each other two times a month, assuming that we're talking at a time that isn't COVID, which right now we are talking during COVID still. But And then within the year, really be thinking about making the move. Absolutely. And do you think that that means when you're picking the person that you're going to be with, do, do they need to be in a place that you would be open to moving to or? Yes. So this is like, you know, I have single event, singles events across the U.S. And now because we're, it's a silver lining because of COVID, now everything's virtual. So I have events in New York City and I'll tell folks in California, look, if you could see yourself living in the New York area, join our single mingles in New York City. What do you have to lose? Do it. 
you never know. You could meet somebody, fall in love, and relocate to a city that you've always envisioned living in at some point. Okay, on terms of what have you got to lose, I have a question because there's something that does worry me a little bit. And this hasn't directly happened to me, but it's one of those, you know, sometimes you uh, worry about things that never happened to you before. Oh, uh, yes, that's a guarantee. We all do that. <laughs> so. so this is my one little caveat that I, that, that I kind of, that, that gives me pause sometimes about the long distance relationship thing. And it's when women fall in love before they've been physically together. And my fear in a situation like that could be that there's a lack of physical or sexual chemistry. And that only matters for people who, who value sex. There, there are some who are asexual or that, that wouldn't yeah. matter at all. And they're only looking for companionship, but for anyone who, for whom sexual chemistry is important, um, that's not something you can know in a vacuum. You're laughing. Tell me. Well, no, I just have a thought about something you just said, even if you're asexual, right. And you don't want to have sex be a part of your relationship. We still have scent. We, right. We're, you need to know if you like how she smells. Absolutely. Yeah, but if she doesn't smell, smell good. So yes, it doesn't, it's not necessarily about sex. It's about scent and energy. Like you're going to feel a different through, if we interface, we're dating through zoom, you're not experiencing all of me, right? Like it's different. So you, you've, I think it's important to, re, I would say if you're connecting with somebody and you're talking on a regular basis and you can feel yourself becoming attached to them, I would say within a month, figure out how to get there as soon as possible. Yes. Cause I yeah. get emails from women all around the world that are in, in different countries and have never met and they've been together for however long and still haven't. I think there is some danger in that. I understand the, the desire for it because there's the emotional comfort of knowing there's somebody else there. Um, but I think there's also a danger of falling deeply for someone and kind of, and, and until you've been physically body to body, it's kind of made up in some ways. Some things aren't made up, you know, the friendship might not be made up, but every, but the entire romantic part of it is sort of hypothetical until it physically happens. I agree with you. I think that you could be immensely disappointed. Yeah. So that's one thing I haven't, I felt, um, you know, I feel bad saying it because I know that for a lot of women, it's sort of their only option. And if, if it is, then you, then that's what you, that's what you have to work with, right? You, you, you make the best of what you got. If that's your only option, you make the best of what you got, but you keep in mind that it, this could be an issue. Yeah. But you go for it and you take the risk. Cause that's, that's, that's what you have available to you. Hundred percent. Broken hearts happen, but it's nothing we can't handle. At the end of the day, right. yeah, we're gonna survive. Yeah, and and we get stronger, we get better. Broken hearts are epic when uh, when we come to the other side. We learn them. from it, right? We learn from it. We recover. We heal, and we're better for it. Do you help women when they're in relationships? Like, are there any uh, interesting? issues that come up in, in queer female relationships that would be worth, that you think are interesting and worth bringing up? Oh my gosh, I do tons of that work. Um, <sighs> I work with women in relationships. I work with women who are exiting relationships. I help them break up. Sometimes they'll call me and they'll say, we just, we care deeply about each other and we don't know how to, how to end things or we want to end things amicably. So what do you think is the most important patterns that you see that, that our community faces in terms of are relating? Oh, this is, that's a great question. Um, I see that women stay in relationships too long. I see that we 
settle, that we accept early on, that we sort of set a precedence and we, we accept things that are not okay for us and therefore we settle. I see too much merging, not enough healthy boundary setting. Um, for example, one of my close friends, she always comments on the differences in terms of the way that I navigate my relationships and the way that she does. And it's often around how I'll go to events on my own, or I might take a trip on my own and I could be in a relationship and I decide I want to right go attend a, an event, a gala with friends, and I don't invite my partner. For her, it's like, she can't even believe it. Who does that? It's like, and, and I can't believe the extent of enmeshment that she has in her relationships. It's with every relationship that I see. So I see that with women, not just my, my close, close friend that I'm referring to, but there's just not enough of a, a balance and there's too much enmeshment, too much time doing things together, sharing everything together. I see a lot of that. Um, now, do you think that that is personality-based, like your best friend? Do you think that she just might fundamentally have a different way of doing doing relating? Or do you think she's in some ways not not developed that certain part of herself that allows her to have the independence? Sort of like the difference between, and I know this isn't the same and I'm not trying to even make them the same, but sort of like when you look at monogamous people and polyamorous women and polyamorous polyamorous people it's not it's not like you know it they it comes from a fundamental difference in the desire in the way they relate it's not that one is doing wrong and the other one's doing wrong so is it that um this merging that you see is it that it's it's good for those people but not for you or is it you think it's bad across the board and it's an issue that we develop it's suffocating i think it's suffocating so it's it's not allowing for enough time to miss one another, to maintain your own individual identity outside of the relationship. So no, it's not the same as this, the now, you know, the example of um, monogamy versus polyamory. I mean, I, what you spoke to is true, right? It's a difference in, in desire and need to connect. No, this is about like, this is about codependence in an unhealthy way. Yes. Yes. It's just, yeah. Because <laughs> it's one thing to be best friends and it's another thing to be codependent. And why do you think that happens more to us in our community? I think that we tend to not want to upset, aggravate, disturb. Um, I think, I mean, we're known to apologize as women. Um, more often. Um, we just don't want to rock the boat. We, um, I see. So it's the people pleasing. And so the both women and both humans in the relationship are socialized to be, because in, in some ways they say that females are more socialized to be people pleasing. And so you think it's in some ways I'm hearing that you're saying maybe this is coming from the way that we're socialized to be people pleasing with each other. Exactly. Um, and then it can be, it's so interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yes. And trust, right? Like there hasn't been an, like there hasn't been an example or experience in the relationship where trust has been broken, but yet there, there's this feeling of 
not wanting to like feeling jealous or envious of their partner spending more time with their friends or spending time with somebody that they don't, it's not a shared friendship. It comes down to trust also. Like, if you have no evidence to believe that this person that you're with can't be trusted, then why not choose to trust them and give them some space to have connections outside of the relationship that you know about? It's not a secret, right? I'm not talking about secret relation. I'm talking about people, like, for example, like I'm very much involved with fitness and the gym. I know people at my gym and I may go to lunch with somebody at my gym and may never introduce that person to my partner. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I hear what you're saying. Um, I have a million more questions about it, but I want to be more mindful of your time. And I have other questions. I have another question that came up from what you were talking about before about women settling. And I, I would love to know your opinion on how we know the difference. Cause before we were talking about not being open-minded enough. So how do we distinguish between what is settling and what is being open-minded to make something work? Yeah. The settling piece is that I think we get to a place where we feel, in a sense, desperate, whether it's conscious or unconscious. So if we meet somebody that, you know, we, we make it so that it's just good enough because we're afraid to be alone because we have pawns. And we're not willing to look outside of our ponds, so we settle. Right. So the settling is really based on a fear of being alone. And the open-mindedness is about, you know, realizing that something actually wouldn't be settling. It would be amazing if only you could open your mind. Exactly. Yeah. Less limiting. You're, you open up the possibilities. Instead of settling to be with somebody, just going back to that example of like, income, right? Like you settle to be with somebody who makes a similar income, but yet you don't have much in common, or maybe your values aren't in alignment, but because she can maintain the lifestyle that you have and you can travel together, you're going to, you're going to settle to be with somebody who actually, you may not even like that much. When you could have had the epic love of your life, best sex of your life, happiest you've ever been, every day of your life you're happy because you're with this wonderful woman, but maybe you don't stay at the nicest hotel when you go every, yes. you know, in the other places. And then I wonder, you know, yes. Um, yes. and I have a, I, I'm pretty sure I know which one will make us happier in the long run. It's not the, the hotel. It's not the hotel. It's not the staying at the Four Seasons. It's the experience that you have with that person and how, how you engage with each other and what you explore together and learn from each other. Yeah. So you just nailed it. That's it. And then staying too long, why do you think that happens in our community more than in other communities? We're afraid to, to, to hurt, to leave. We're afraid to reject that person. Again, the people-pleasing idea. I think also we become dependent on, you know, we, we like what's familiar and comfortable. Like it become, even if we're not happy, we're familiar with what we've created with that person and change is really hard for us just as humans. Yeah. It's scary. It's scary. And then alone, I'm going to be alone. I hear that so often. I'm afraid I'm going to be alone. I'm going to age by myself. How do you help people? How do you help people manage that fear? Once you can be alone with yourself, so I encourage them to learn how to be alone with themselves. We are our own best friend. Once you can 
be with yourself and know that you've, you've got your back. Like that fear is gone. You don't worry anymore about being alone. Sit with your thoughts. Like here's an example. I was terrified to travel by myself. So I pushed myself because I knew I had to, I had to experience if something that scares me, I need to lean into it because oftentimes the things that scare us, it's just bullshit. It's not even, it's all fear-based. It's not based in reality. So I did, I went on my own. I went to Mexico and first 24 hours, I am very social, but I'm shy initially to strike up conversation. I can be shy. And it was rough for me for the first 24 hours. I then met amazing people, two of which I'm still in contact with. And I love traveling on my own now. So you just like, I realized that like I experienced things that I could not have experienced if had I brought a friend with me or a partner. Because you end up meeting more people when you're by yourself, right? You, have to, you end up engaging with people you may not have ever crossed paths with. Um, and I just, I feel like if you can be on your own and you know that you're going to be all right, you never, you, you don't get into a desperate place or a fear place of, of being alone. You just don't think about it anymore. It's a, it's a non-issue once you can learn to be with yourself and, and find contentment in that. And that's something that everyone can get. We all can get that. Yes. Even if we've had trauma, even if we've been abandoned repeatedly, you can get that. It takes effort. You got to work on it. What are some practices you recommend? You push yourself off the cliff kind of thing. Like you just, you just say yes to it. Say yes. So things that make you uncomfortable, commit to saying yes more often than not. And doing them. You just do it. And then you see like, holy shit, I worried. I avoided that for so long. For what? None of what I thought would happen happened. And that's going to be that way for pretty much most things. And when we do the things that suck, sometimes it'll suck, but then it'll stop sucking and then you'll be okay. Yeah. It's not going to suck forever. It's transient, like discomfort, unhappiness, like feelings don't, they're they're not going to be there forever. They shift, they change, they morph They're It's always changing. So if you feel disillusioned, right? And you feel like totally like you're never going to be with anybody ever again, or, you know, it's not, it's not true. You will be, you can, you can make it a self-fulfilling prophecy where you're not going to be because you create that, but you are your own barrier. Yeah. I think anyone who's willing to work on themselves, I think the most interesting thing in life is when we go into discomfort and sit with uncomfortable feelings and then realize that they pass and then realize, oh, you can go, go ahead and do the rest of your day from that point. Yes. Yeah. You can sit with it and be in it. And the other point I wanted to make really briefly is that we're wired for survival and self-preservation. So that's another, that's another concept that if you know that you, you understand that like, okay, so I'm afraid to leave this relationship. This is why people stay long, longer than they should also is because they're afraid of the unknown and it's safer to be in what is known than what is unknown. So there's a lot of things that we do for survival sake when we're not necessarily aware of it. Yeah. Better the devil we know so far we haven't died with this person 
if we leave this person, for all we know, we might not survive. We might die. I mean, the the, the monkey brain, um, yes. you know, tells oh, us things yeah. that we don't always necessarily understand. Or we may meet somebody even worse than this person. Maybe this is the best that I can get. So let me just stay. And I think that's typical across any, that's heterosexual too. I mean, that's something totally. you hear across that, the, that yeah. maybe this is the best I'll ever do. Yeah. Can we get back to jealousy and envy um, sure. between women? Sure. Yeah. So do you think, what are, what's some advice you have around that? I would say that like when you, when you start to feel those icky feelings, you got to figure out, first of all, is that coming from something from your past or is it something from the present time with your, within your relationship? You want to, you want to differentiate, separate those two and figure that out. Between a red flag versus your projection. Yes. Yeah. Are you bringing it in? Are you projecting that? Are you putting that on this person or the relationship from the past? Or is there shit going on in your relationship that's making that you getting that like feeling in your gut, that sixth sense that something's not right and it's making you feel possessive and controlling? Or is this shit coming from your ex that cheated on you, you know, 10 years ago? Like, figure it out. Where is that coming from? Because you, if that person's going to cheat on you or they're going to lie or whatever, you, you don't have control over that. That's when you, that's another thing. When you realize you don't have control over plenty in life, you stop trying to control all these variables. You only have control of yourself. Right. So don't be jealous. If she's a cheater, leave. Yes. And if you're jealous and she's not a cheater, Figure it out. Figure it out. And stop being jealous. You're making yourself crazy and you're making her yes. hurt for no reason. Well, you're, pu- you're pushing her away. So there you go with the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If your fear is that you're going to get treated, che- cheated on, yeah, you're going to probably create that. If you keep accusing her of lying or cheating, right? Yeah. That's not, yeah. You need to have trust in a relationship for it to be successful. And if you don't, then you have to figure out, is it because you're not a trusting person? If so, figure out how to be more trusting. Otherwise, if she's not trustworthy, then don't be there. Yep. Don't be there. Because trying to control her with jealousy is just going to torture yourself. It's going to torture her. It's going to be miserable. And a cheater and a liar, no matter what, no matter what you do, they will always cheat and lie. You're not going to change that behavior in them. Yeah. They have to want to change that behavior in themselves. It's, it's like addiction, right? Like you're not going to, if you're dating somebody who's an alcoholic, you're not going to change her behavior by telling her you don't want her to be an alcoholic. That has to come from her. 100%. Same. Yeah. yeah. And then we have to make our decisions accordingly, not from a place of fear, not from fearing that we're never going to find anybody else. So therefore we have to change her. We can just control ourselves and trust ourselves that we can find somebody else. Exactly. And how confident are you? I I feel pretty confident whenever I meet women that are single to be able to say to them, 100%, if you are willing to work on yourself and open your mind and make yourself better every day, you're not going to end up alone. Are you, can you confidently say that to women too? 100%. If you want to be with somebody and you're very clear that you want to, you're not doing it because your family wants you to do it or your friends want you to do it because they're worried about you being alone or lonely, 
you really want it, you will make that happen. You have to take the necessary steps. You can't tell me that, oh, Dr. Frankie, you know, I'm sure I'm going to bump into her at the supermarket or when I'm at the gym or, you know, she'll knock on my door at some point. No, she won't be. You won't be bumping into her at the gym or meeting her at the supermarket line. You need to be proactive and create opportunities for yourself. And inside of yourself, be knocking down all the barriers that are going to keep you from seeing her and being attracted to her or feeling good about yourself in order to even let yourself be happy in that moment. Yes. Yes. You need to be open to it. You need to be open to intimacy, open to rejection. It's hard. This is all, I say this so easily. It's like all day long I talk about this stuff, but don't get me wrong. It's really hard. None of it is easy. But anything in life that is very rewarding takes effort, takes work. And same goes for relationships. You want to be with somebody fantastic? You better bring it. You better take care of yourself. You better be in a really good space to, to, to draw somebody in. Yeah, women are picky. And rejection is part of the game when you're dating women, but it is so worth it. You got to know that. It's just part of it. And, you know, you get rejected Lick your wounds for a minute, pick yourself up, and keep moving right along. They're a loss. I know that a lot of your clients are just the, the, the basically the, the highest achieving, kind of most successful, most badass lesbians that there are. Um, and that's just matchmaking clients. Just to make sure, I want to make sure if listeners, um, I want to make sure it's clear. Those are, those are my matchmaking clients, right? Because it's, it's, it's a big financial investment. Um, but there are, I have coaching clients. I, you know, I, I teach a course that's called single, sexy, and queer. It's, it, you know, it's not women that are, you know, it's a different socioeconomic status. It's just everybody. Right. No, I know, but I was going to get into a, I was going to get into a question. I'm not sure if, if, if it's the right question, but, um, do you think that, that being queer in today's world or in yesterday's world when many of us who'd be listening to this podcast were born and raised now little girls that are born today it's a very different world than the one that we were born into totally but do you think that um that queer women who were born in a world in, in our world where it wasn't quite acceptable yet do you think that in terms of our ability to be our best selves um, be our most successful on every level has been affected by that, you think, by being queer in a non-queer world across the board in our community? Or, or do you think that overall we're good? No, of course that affects us. We feel flawed. We're early on. There's something, many of us have felt different. I felt, I don't know about you, but I, from a very young age, I felt different. I didn't know I didn't know. I didn't have that awareness. Some women have the awareness, right? Some queer folks have the awareness very early on that they're attracted to the same gender. How old were you when you came out? I was 21. I was 23 so I was, when I figured it out. Yeah, we were Yeah. Late. I was pretty young, comparatively speaking, right? Or late. Or two. I mean, I don't know. To be other, I mean, had I figured out when I was 12 that I liked girls, I would have been, you know, it would have right. been a very, yes. when I was trying to be with boys when I was 12, had I, you know, I don't know. So it feels late, but yeah, it is early, but it's late at the same time. When you think about somebody coming out in their 40s, right? We were early. Yeah. Um, but I think absolutely it impacts our self concept. Do you think, have you seen statistics around it though? Like demographically, other than I know that we have the highest divorce rate of any other community, but do you know demographically in terms of, um, 
I haven't seen I that measured either. That. I haven't either. No, but I think that's interesting. Um, I don't, I can't give you any stats. Um, Cause sometimes I hear things like about stats, like you, you, some people argue, oh, well, since we didn't, since a lot of queer women don't have families, therefore they were able to thrive more in their career. Um, and then other people say no, because we were made to feel so insecure growing up, maybe in some ways that held us back or because so many I think of both. us are, are gender non-conforming. Maybe we didn't get those same benefits that your um, girl who fits in the box of all what the girls are supposed to be, you know, and therefore they get ahead on those grounds. You know, maybe there's less of that. So I, I'd be curious. I've never had anybody be able to show me stats about, you know, queer female level of success, but me neither. Interesting though. Yeah, I'm really. If that hasn't been conducted, that that analysis needs to happen because that would be so helpful. But I think if I were to guess, based from, based on my experience and just being a psychologist, I think that it absolutely contributes. Growing up in a heteronormative world where you were made to feel different um, and marginalized is absolutely going to affect your self-image, your self-concept, how you see yourself, how you many many women that you know, we're in our generation, grew up thinking they could never have children. And, right, like... And also just when same-sex attraction is considered wrong, I know for me, when I first came out, the most outrageous thing was that, you know, being able to show my sexual attraction for another woman in a way where she would find it hot, as opposed to, I guess, my fear when I was, you know, that I knew I wanted to kiss a girl before this, but the idea that had I even tried with anyone, I didn't know if she would think it was crazy, creepy, scary. Um, And so then just our own ability, I think across the board in our community, our ability to just own our own desire and the fact that like when we desire someone that's hot as hell and to know that about ourselves, I think we have to, it's something we have to learn where I think um, in the heterosexual community, it's just kind of a given when they're little. Yes. Just what you just said actually um, hit something in me. Just the idea that you have to think about if I show interest in this girl, she might think I'm creepy. Because it was true. It's true. And it, and it's creepy. It's wrong, like really on a deep level. And you're just officially a creep. And that's, um, that's profoundly... Yeah. Uh, impact, that, impa- that impacts us. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mean you can't evolve and grow from it. No. You know, and, and you can, but to say that it doesn't impact our, you know, potentially the trajectory of our lives, you have to make early, like at 21, I was graduating from college. Like I was making decisions about my career and future and sure, how I saw myself, what I thought I was capable of, what I thought the society would be, you know, what would be acceptable in society. I, I'm sure that was that weighed in on the choices that I made. I mean, real quick, I'll just tell you, I wanted to be an anchor. I wanted to be um, on television. I wanted to be a, a show host as, you know, since I was a kid. Young now kid. you are. Check you out. I know, right? <laughs> Who knew? I didn't. I actually, so I gave up that dream because I, I worked for Montel Williams and a few other um, shows. And there was a lot of sexual harassment that was making me feel incredibly uncomfortable. So when Me Too happened, I was like, whoa, this is like so powerful. Um, I left that career because I, I couldn't, I realized that this was going to be, this is commonplace and either I was going to deal with it or I needed to bounce. And I, I chose to leave and go into academia where I could be in the library, right? Study, 
get my doctorate and be a therapist in my office um, privately. And look how it then knocked on my door again. But um, it changed the trajectory I couldn't handle. I mean, I can't remember why I'm bringing this up exactly, but I just, at that age, I wanted to do that and I could not, and it might have played into it. Some of that sexuality stuff may have played into it. And I think not only does it play into what you're talking about, but I think that also plays into my other question about how, whether queer women of our generation have been held back success-wise. Because for me, when I was 23, I was in law school, everyone else, all the other girls my age were kind of focusing on their their summer internships and what they were going to do. And they were like, you know, finding their husbands, moving forward, doing all these big life planning stuff. And I was going to the lesbian bar the first time, finding out how to ask a girl out and like figuring out for the first time what it's like to actually be attracted to someone who's attracted to me back. And it's, I, I felt like I was in, like I was 12 years old, but I was 23. And that occupied so much of my brain power when my other friends were focused on their career. And I remember kind of when I got on the, out of the fog of my coming out adventure, it was however, a couple three years later, I don't know, whatever, by the time I had, was settled into my first relationship really and turned around and realized, wow, um, I fell behind a little bit. I fell behind for a couple of years because, and you know, because I, and and is it behind? No, I was developing parts of myself that legitimately needed to be developed but it happened so much later. And I, and I wonder if, if statistically we as a community are, are held back by that. We, ha- we have a delayed adolescence. That's what I call it. It's a delayed adolescence. We, we're trying to figure out our sexuality and it does, we don't have the same kind of experiences early on that, um, that heterosexual, our heterosexual peers had, dating. I was walking around the other day outside because I like to take long walks. And the other day I saw these four little girls that were being baby, and they must have been like maybe eight or nine. And they were being babysat by another girl that looked like she was maybe, maybe 14, you know? So there wasn't a huge age age spread, but she was clearly, you know, like, like twice their size sort of, but they were still old enough to kind of get it. And, and um, so they were like trying, they clearly thought she was really cool. She clearly knew that she was really cool with these other little girls sort of following her around. And they were just a few steps behind me. So I was listening to what they were saying. And they're like, when did you break up with Amber? And she's like, yeah, Amber and I broke up last week. And she's like, well, who are you with now? And she's like, my new girlfriend is like Louisa or something. Well, how long have you been together? She's like, yeah, we've been together for like two weeks. And she's sitting here. This like, if I was 14 talking to nine-year-old girls about females that I was attracted to, I would have been expelled. I would have, it would have been like a whole community conference about how I'm like corrupting these little, I mean, it would have been the creepy, you know, and your parents would have been mortified. Everyone would have been worried about their neighbors, what they would think, their friends would think. All those parents would like never talk to my parents again. You know, it would have been this huge scandal. And I'm sitting here looking at these girls being like, wow, this is amazing. And my heart was so happy. And also just thinking, what would my life have been like if I could have been dating girls when I was that age? Um, but wow, it's just, it was just an unbelievable thing to witness. Um, and I sort of knew that it was happening with younger humans that they have this opportunity, but it's not like I really got to see that interaction of just these kids and what that looks like where it was just so normalized and so awesome. We'll never know that. We'll never know what that's like, but we can watch from the outside and be like, wow, that's just, yeah warms my heart. I love hearing stories like that. And it's just, it's inspiring to see this, the younger generations, just how their openness is just, it's, I love it. I'm, I'm enjoying 
Me too. And you know, it's partially it's it's partially thanks to you, right? And the work that that all of us that are openly sharing a good point. part we 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 help pave the way. That's true. I remember when I first came out, it was so important for me to to tell people that I was a lesbian because I wanted I wanted to be the one to say it. I didn't want it to be whispered to them. I wanted to proudly say it because it's okay to be gay and I wanted to own that. Yeah. Um and I and it's been I mean that was a long long time ago. So now and it wasn't at the time, you know, as okay to be gay. So I do like to feel that my, that I, that I helped contribute to. I to believe that, that. Little girls. I and that. you did too, for yeah. sure. You're, you've been doing amazing things. I'm so grateful for everything you've done for our community. I, I know you're running up on time. I want to be mindful of it, but can you just tell the audience where they can find more, go find, where they can find your parties, where they can sure. find your matchmaking, everything. Yeah. Just, just find us at littlegaybook.com. Littlegaybook.com has all of our events, my single, sexy and queer course, which is pretty amazing. I launched it this year and lots and lots and lots of articles. I've written articles for over a decade, tons of resources on there. So all right. I look forward to connecting with people. Thank you so much for asking me to hang with you. for this. Yeah, you're a treasure. Thanks for coming. I'm so glad we got to have this talk. It was super fun. This was really fun for me. I'm so grateful and I'm sure it's going to be fun for the audience. Thank you for sharing your genius with us. You're wonderful. Oh, thanks. And now I would love to hear from you. We covered a whole lot of things in this episode, but I'm curious. What of the many things we talked about was the most impactful for you? Head on over to the blog at womenwantingwomen.com and let us know. And if you're interested in finally finding the woman of your dreams, so you could be best friends who learn and grow together and share your dreams together and have adventures together and share passionate intimacy together, then there are tons of free resources for you on womenwantingwomen.com, including a guide to quickly and easily eliminate rejection from your life, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a report that explains the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, and a free matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is free at womenwantingwomen.com. And when you claim your free access to any of those things, you automatically become a Jordana Michelle Insider, which will give you instant access to an email training series I created to help you get on your game to finding your soulmate faster and easier, and to help you grow the deepest possible love together once you finally do meet. Plus, you'll get exclusive content and special giveaways and some personal updates from me that I just don't share anywhere else. So go to womenwantingwomen.com and check it out for yourself and share it with any other LGBT women that you think can benefit from what I'm offering there. Until next time, keep remembering that hot lesbians are everywhere, that love is real, and that the woman of your dreams is on her way into your life in perfect timing. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Women Wanting Women. 